If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode of Damsels in the DMs. I wish that actors would stop trying to guess what casting wants, because what we want is to see what you bring to the role. I mean, that's what informs the process. If we had, you know, no life brought to the role, like what would we do? We need somebody who can come in and bring life into that role and breathe it into this form where we're like, that's the person because that's the character. So you're sort of informing us on our decision-making process based upon how you bring the role to life. This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. Uh-huh. What's the vibe? There's some damsels in the DM. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah, we see them. Yeah, we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ash. Ash is in Paris still, returned from her vacation, and about to start her big acting program. Tell us all about it, Ash. My God, dude, I feel like I've been on vacation, and I know it sounds like a complaint, and it kind of is a complaint, but I've been on vacation for like two months. And everyone listening to this podcast hates you. (laughs) Everyone's going to hate me, and that's okay, because I hate myself, too. I am sick of being on vacation and Lauren just knew that something was wrong because I came back from my first vacation and we had a call. She was like, I can tell something's wrong. You haven't been in your routine. Like you're not happy. And I was like, I'm not happy. I haven't had my routine in so long. And all of you know that my routine is the most important thing to me, but it's fine because I'm getting into it. And, uh, you know, Paris is beautiful and I'm happy to be here. I just need to start real life and not be in this weird in between it's real I feel like sometimes when I'm on vacation I have too much time to like percolate on things and I'm somebody who can be like too in my head too in my own thoughts and I feel like when you're in a routine you're so like focused on all the things that you have to be doing that at least for me sometimes I can be like more mentally stable when I'm in my routine and not on vacation which seems weird yeah, no, it's not weird at all because on vacation, on vacation mode, you are not motivated to do anything. Like right now, I am not 
motivated to do anything like not even to walk outside and go for a walk like I will literally just sit on my phone and be on Instagram reels and I will happily pass time but I'll be depressed because it's really nice outside and everyone's outside but still I feel like I'm in such a weird mood right now that I would just rather sit on the couch and not do anything school starts tomorrow I'm super excited it has been a long time since I've acted not just with the strike but also being out of acting classes for two or three months so I'm very excited about that but Lauren you're back in New York now she's back she was in California for like the whole summer now I'm back baby with film school now it's like you can't watch anything without like being so critical on it mm-hmm. and the weird thing is that like I feel like I've disassociated from the fact that I'm watching myself as an actor like I'm not even nitpicking myself or like cuts that I'm doing like I don't feel insecure about that it's more just like the overall general film. I'm like narrowing things down to the millisecond on the edit. It's interesting because uh, we did talk to Alexis, um, our casting director, who you're going to listen to shortly. And she was saying how, you know, if you just have your one line in a show, like you just got to be ready and do your one line because the director's not going to give a f- how you say it, that line. He's going to move on. He's not going to give you different takes and you know like be like no do it this way do it that way like you just as an actor like you have to be ready to say your line and do your shit because you're not going to have so many chances to do it which I feel like relates to what you were saying it's like you don't even look at yourself like that anymore where you're like so nitpicky about your own acting it's just the vibe as a whole which is what directors are looking at vibe as a whole or producer. It's even, I mean, I, I know I've known of a lot of actors who have been like cut out of certain projects and after like being in the editing process myself. So for Columbia, our films had to be under 12 minutes and the cut that I send to festivals will likely be longer than that. But because we were editing down to 12 minutes, I had to cut out some really beautiful performances and acting moments, not because I didn't like them, but just because like for the sake of the story to keep moving, like it had to get cut out. And I feel like this is just like a little PSA for actors is that like, really, it has nothing to do with you. And like a lot of the acting moments, like I was sad to cut out, not for myself, but for the other actors, because they were so great. But the only reason they had to be was because like, if it is not like moving along the story within like the seconds allotted when you have to cut down that much, like it's just going to go and it has nothing to do with you. It's all about like, how is this moving the story forward? So anyway, I feel like that is a great segue into our guest today, who is the absolutely wonderful Alexis Winter, who is an amazing casting director, has cast some really incredible projects, starting with One Tree Hill. And we had a really great conversation with her. I feel like it was awesome to get the casting perspective of the strike right now, just because there's so much ambiguity with the strike. And I think people are confused on like, where are people who are not actors in this industry? Where do they side with right now? How do they align with the AMPTP or with SAG or with the WGA? And what are they working on in the meantime? And I feel like Alexis clears up a lot of those questions. And I'm excited for everybody to hear her. Let's get into it. All right. Well, hello, Alexis. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
So I first found you on Instagram, I think, because you've been really useful for actors during the strike in terms of sharing, you know, what's okay, what to stay away from. I saw your post about central casting today. So we would just love to hear a little bit about how you got into casting, your journey towards it, what you love working on, and now what you see as your role during this kind of strange period of time for actors. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll start with how I got into it because that's always also a question I think a lot of casting directors get asked because there's no like clear path into casting, you know, but I was very lucky. I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is like this tiny little town and they have a really great film community. And at the time when I started, it was like 2007, there was lots of stuff filming there still. So like we had One Tree Hill going and Eastbound and Down and lots of films coming in and out. So I was doing extras work and actually knew the extras casting director or background casting mm. director. And so I started helping out in the office. She would have to do other stuff. When she got married, I covered for her. And what was interesting is the way that it worked over there was our office was on the studio lot and we did not only the background casting, but all of the local casting too. So I was working as like kind of a casting assistant, but also covering like all of the background casting. So it was like this full spectrum casting experience. It gave me a lot of really valuable knowledge. And plus like we were on the lot. And so I would go to set whenever I wanted to. And also we would like eat the catering because like we were on the lot. And so when they filmed on the stages, we would like get their catering. So we're eating with cast and crew and it was really fun. I became friends with a lot of the cast of One Tree Hill and they're like, you know, it was the best experience ever because first of all, they all, by the time I joined, had already been doing it for like five seasons, I think. And so I was just part of this really well-oiled machine. And so I really got to see the role that everybody played in the in the show, like the, what the ADs did, you know, what PAs did, all these different terms and all these different shorthand and all these different things on set that I don't think a lot of casting assistants and associates get exposed to here in LA because our offices are just so insular. Mm -hmm. so it was like this completely different experience. It opened my eyes, not even just into casting, but into like filmmaking and like, you know, the ADs and everybody were friends because I had known them before I was ever in casting. Like my boyfriend at the time, the first AD was his brother-in-law and so like everything just felt very friendly like production meetings were great I became friends with all the producers like we would all go out on weekends because it was a tiny town I mean it was like unlike any experience I think you would ever get in LA for sure yeah what do you think, you know, being somebody who grew up watching TV and, you know, unfamiliar with the world, then being like really right in the center of it all, what was the most surprising thing you learned? You know, I can't even remember now. It was so long ago. I think the most surprising thing about it is just for me now, how difficult it is to get anything made. Coming from the studio world and having the majority of my jobs be in the studio world, you just, you jump in, there's money, you start casting, you know, and on the development side, it's so much more of an uphill battle and it's much more about like the finances of it all, mm -hmm. the marketing and distribution budgets and what those actors bring in for that. It's like a completely different side of the casting process when you're talking about development. Actors become a form of equity, which then opens up a whole other conversation about like, you know, how you offer them the role, what credits you give them. So I actually think I became more shocked at the process when I got more and more into um, indie film. Mm -hmm. What were you doing before this One Tree Hill job? Oh, yeah. So that's the part that always shocks everybody. I was a professional equestrian. I rode horses as my job. 
I had been riding horses my whole life. I was like competitive. I was riding for this really great equestrian. Her name is Kristen Smolzy and I was like her groom. And so we were like traveling around for her show circuit. And she was like one of the top riders in the country. She was like on the Olympic training team, um, had been like a young rider of the year at one point. She was an inventor. So we did three day eventing. What was really cool is like her trainers were Olympians. So it was this really fun like world. And in fact, there is a longstanding like passion project of mine to create a documentary in the style of like cheer. Did you guys see cheer on Netflix? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I want to do like a documentary style kind of like cheer is where it follows specific people that are like kind of at the top of that game of that world and do that for the equestrian world. Because I always have said like a tennis and golf are such major spectator sports and so marketed and so sponsored. Like, why are we not doing that with the equestrian sports? I've never been in a more thrilling atmosphere than watching somebody run a cross country course. It is so fun. What made you switch from that to being in the movie world? So it's not really that different when you think about like the conversations we're having now, it's a very elitist sport. And if you don't have a lot of money, you just really can't make it far. I know I was good at it. And I know if I had the money, I would have been much better. And in fact, being broke kind of made it so much harder for me in so many ways. Like, you know, I didn't come from money. My dad was in the army. Like my mom was a stay at home mom and then a librarian. Like we weren't like generational wealth. We weren't like wealthy. We just, you know, a small beach town family kind of people. And I just really became fascinated by the world of equestrian sports, but I didn't have the money to do it. And so it kind of opened up my eyes. Even back then, I was like, this is so unfair because I know there's tons of talented people out there that are so willing and like deserving to have this opportunity and would be so thankful for it and treat their horses like gold and go so far in the sport. If only they could get a sponsor that would help them get there. And that's just not how that sport is run. I feel that all the time about actors because I don't think people realize how expensive it is to be an actor. Like, first of all, if you can get your headshots taken by a better photographer, that's a leg up. (laughs) If you have the resources to get your reel made, that's a leg up. If you can take casting director workshops and some of the sites, that's a leg up. Expensive acting classes. And I, I don't think that people realize, I think people think you can just like show up if you're like attractive or something and you know, you're articulate enough that you can be an actor, but they don't realize like how much goes into the marketing materials and you know, the upkeep of being an actor. Oh yeah. And even just the access to the agencies. I mean, I've, I've always thought and said, like for me, the, the materials come second to the, the everything comes last when it comes to the acting ability, acting abilities first. You get nowhere. You can be the hottest person in the world. You can be the most friendly person in the world. And every single casting director can be in love with you. But if you can't act, you're not going to book jobs. So, you know, my big thing is like the talent comes first. And then it becomes, we talk about again, like access and privilege. And that's where nepotism comes into play because Mm -hmm. I'm not saying these people aren't talented and deserving, but they have the access already. So it's easier for them. They're, They're born on third base and think they hit a triple, but that's just not how it would have been. If you look at the general population of actors and how many there are and how hard it is for any of them to even make a living, even to qualify for health insurance, which is only like $26,000 a year. So you start having these conversations, which are necessary, but then it's kind of like, how do we solve that? Like, so my thing has always been, I'm going to do what I can. And that's providing as much of this information for free as I possibly can. And also try to prevent actors from spending money where it doesn't need to be spent. You don't need to be spending $5,000 on an acting class for like a couple of weeks of a course. Like that's insane. Nobody can provide you enough knowledge to make that price tag worth it, in my opinion. 
100%. And I think that SAG is one of the few unions where 87% of their members don't even qualify for health insurance, meaning you're not even making 26000 a year. So I think no. I've been saying No, yeah. and I'll say that's one thing I love about, you know, casting directors are in the Teamsters union. And while there are a lot of things I will say about being casting is that we're very often along left along the wayside and forgotten about and not really directly addressed or supported in many ways. It sort of feels a little bit like we're drowning in the Teamster Union because there are so many members that they focus on before they focus on casting. And it's such an old, powerful union, you know, but it doesn't feel all the time like casting is completely like put in the center or even near the center of that conversation. When we talk about Teamsters, most people don't even know we're Teamsters. So that's hard mm. because we don't really get, I think, the pay conversation and things are things I've always been very vocal about, like how much value casting provides and how little we get in return, including awards and all this stuff. But the health insurance for us is so accessible, you know, because you only need like 400 hours a year to, to like qualify for your health insurance. Wow. And you get one job and you've got that because our weeks are based off of a 60 hour minimum. So the jobs you get when you're on a union job, you're automatically banking 60 hours a week. So if you get most jobs are 10 weeks. So you're banking 600 hours. And so at least you're like putting a little bit of that extra, those extra hours are, are put aside to, to help buffer you, you know, for like lean times, like a strike. And so that's one thing I will say about the union that I have that I feel like SAG or somebody I wish would, I wish there was a way to frame it to where more actors qualified. And I don't really have the tools or even the knowledge to like begin that conversation. I'm learning from other people mm -hmm. that are much better at articulating like how SAG negotiates with the AMPTP for their, for their health insurance. But that conversation to me is so blatantly, obviously like this should not be happening this way. Does casting work with the same, same pay process as actors and writers where it's just like a, job to job paycheck or is it on a salary and those hours that you're counting towards a job is it based on like an hourly pay or project based well we're on a weekly pay but that can be like prorated at an hourly depending on how the job is structured there's not like hard and fast i mean there are and again this is not where I, my expertise lies but we have weekly minimums um just like everybody does like but we only have one kind of contract really there's a couple other ones like you can work on different projects and they'll vary a little bit but i'm going to speak in general terms so generally you're going to be on a weekly contract which is automatically 60 hours a week so there's a couple issues i have with that just personally from my experience we don't need to be calling it the minimum because that's just the rate nobody ever offers us over the minimum at any job i've ever been in um, and i think i've gotten over the minimum like twice and that's because my casting director fought for me as an associate to get over the minimum saying she's got over 10 years of experience and we don't have an assistant, so she should be getting over the minimum. Those are the only times I ever got it is when we did not have an assistant and my casting director fought for it. We don't get kit rentals, which is ridiculous because we pay for these massively expensive MacBooks and all these really expensive, we have to pay for Microsoft Word every year, Dropbox, um, Google Drive. Like we have to have all these things that we pay for and like union memberships, which is 1200 a year and then CSA, which is 250 a year. And then, you know, if you're in like the Television Academy is another 200 and something a year. So you, you think of all these things that really add up to be a casting director and we don't get anything. We don't get a kit rental nothing like that. And then we're freelance. So we might work on a job for 10 weeks, but then we're unemployed till the next job comes up. And it's really competitive because it really is the big offices getting most of the jobs. So they'll have like anywhere between at the very lowest, maybe two, but 10 or more jobs at a time. And so they're hiring 
different like casting associate and assistants to run those different shows, or they have maybe one casting associate doing two or three jobs or whatever it is. So they don't really bring in new people. And so it becomes like sort of kind of scrambling for the next job. And so that's another thing, like our weekly rates don't allow us to save money to survive those lean times between jobs. And a lot of casting associates are being like pigeonholed into these career casting associate roles because they're not ever able to move up as a casting director because there's just nobody's hiring casting directors because they keep going back to the same like five to 10 offices for their jobs. And it changes too, based on if you're working on an independent project, right? Just because yeah. I, I hired um, Danielle Pretzfelder, who did an amazing mm-hmm. job on one of my projects recently. And for independent, she was telling me that those contracts look completely different because it can be like a flat fee for the, the whole project out. you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even worse in some cases because... There's really um, a fear-based conversation, just like with actors, like you don't want to turn down the work or ask for too much because they'll just go to someone else. And we're also desperate to get our credits built up so that we can hopefully work towards getting those bigger jobs. So we take all of these indies and I've worked on, I mean, more than five indies that have paid me like $1,500 to $2,500. And it's been like six months to two years of work. So not a livable wage at all. And that's to cast like just the lead roles, you know, to bring in the value. But then you think about it, like you're just casting two or three roles and it's like, those are the two or three roles that are getting you your financing, your marketing, and your distribution. Like that's not just two or three roles. You're talking about your entire film and the marketability of it and what festivals you get into. And these actors are going to be the face of it and making the red carpet appearances. Like this is not just, you know, so it's, it's almost like an insulting conversation because they really downplay the part casting plays and everything. And um, I think every casting director should get a producer credit no matter what they're working on. And at what point in the project are you being brought on? Because like, I know it could depend, but if you're talking about securing financing and having the names attached to it, then, you know, that's being brought on before the project can even see the light of day on when it's going oh, yeah. to be made, right? Yeah. Yeah. Super early. I've been on, I've been brought on projects when it's just a script, a writer, and a couple of producers. Usually it's the producers that will hire us, you know, I've been on before directors. Sometimes I've helped find the directors for projects, which is definitely out of my scope as a casting director. (laughs) And almost every time I give pushback for a producer credit, it's almost always argued with. In fact, there was one project where I was on a meeting with the line producer. And to be clear, line producers often have very little to do with the process of hiring. They're usually just dealing with budgets and making sure everything works and fits. Like I don't really have, I've never really had a line producer have a say in my casting process, but they were brought on because it was a small indie with a small team. And she actually looked right at me and said, I've been on this for two years. Why do you deserve to have a credit like I do? And I, I looked at her and I said, because your movie's not going to get made without a cast. So if I was to hand you a check for a million dollars, would you say I can't have a producer credit because I haven't been on it for two years? So what's the difference between bringing in a million dollars in pre-sale value with a cast and handing you a million dollar check? I'm a producer. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, it's an insulting process a lot of the time. Yeah, what I find so weird, so I'm in um, Columbia's MFA producing program. So we talk a lot about like, you know, the value of a producing credit, when you can give out a producing credit. But like in my experience working with the casting director, she helped to negotiate a producing credit for one of the actors that I hired. So as a casting director, if you're negotiating other people's credits, then you should also be able to negotiate that same credit for yourself. Yeah, we do that a lot. I mean, in the indie world, it's even more common, as I'm sure you're aware, to bring in actors and have them get producer credits. And a lot of that is because we don't have the budget to pay them their normal rate. And we're acknowledging the fact that they are the reason this film is getting financing and all these other things. And possibly the reason it's getting into festivals, possibly the reason it's selling to a streamer or getting sale, like distribution and marketing. And so 
yeah, giving them a producer credit is a very small way to give them that nod of like, hey, you're our equity. Like people don't talk about it enough that like a lot of these big name actors are physical living equity for films and they're the reason they get made. And that's another conversation I see a lot of actors complain about. Like it's always these bigger names in the lead roles. Why don't you cast unknowns? And I get the frustration. I mean, part of it is an experience-based thing. We can't throw somebody into a number one spot who's going to be on set every day and not even know if you know how to like be on set. That's like the first most simple explanation. But the other is when it comes down to like pre-sale value and marketing and all these big deals that you have to worry about with investors and producers and networks and studios, like they want to see these numbers that like validate this project and make them want to make it, you know, or buy it or whatever. And so when you have these big actors, I always try to remind actors like, hey, if this film goes to Sundance and you have a supporting part in it, you have that actor to thank for that. So mm -hmm. your career is still getting boosted. Your exposure is getting boosted. If there's trailers being cut and your face is in the trailer, like you have all this new real material, you have a resume. If you're going to award shows, you have that stuff to add. You have promotional pictures. You have an EPK you can create now. So, you know, I think people forget that like, these actors, these big name actors that are taking a giant cut to be an indie film are boosting everybody's careers around them. They're producing that writer, that director, the actors that are in the film with them, the producers that are on the film, the small production company that's making it. They're boosting everybody's marketability. They're boosting everybody's exposure and their ability to get their next job. And I think that a lot of people aren't having that conversation or not understanding it. As a yeah. casting director, I want to, I'm really actually curious, what advice do you have for actors who are still, you know, like, probably like, I haven't booked any co-star roles, guest star roles, any of that, but I'm still like trying to find my mark, especially as a woman of color in the industry, and especially as an Indian actor, because then there's like, there's only the stereotypical roles, or there's not that many roles for everyone to go around with. What advice do you have for, I guess, me? <laughs> It's hard because these conversations are tough. I think not even when you're just talking about like developmental actors, but then you're talking about demogra demographic differences between de developmental actors. And it's very complicated and difficult because it's gotten better. Is it as good as it could be? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like you look at the majority of lead roles, it's still white actors. So we're having the conversations, we're making the moves, but the numbers and the pre-sale value and the old school models for all of that are still very racially based towards white men. And so when you start talking about pre-sale value and packaging films, like they don't even look at names that won't bring value. And those names, ironically, are um, not going to be the white guys and the white women, you know, the Margot Robbie's of the world are always going to bring in more money than I think an actor of color. And that's tough and it sucks. And it's going to take mm -hmm. our market so long to catch up with that, or it's going to take some studios making some really great, brave moves and helping us and supporting us in those decisions, because I can bring you every name. I can set it in front of you and talk about how good of an actor they are. But unless that studio approves that actor, I have no power. And that's the yeah. hard thing is the conversations revolving around these decisions and how these decisions are made are so complicated when you get to that level. And I hate it. I mean, I hate that part of it. I wish that you know, I think that's what indie film opens up for us. There's a lot more creative conversations that aren't so blocked by like, you know, yeah. <laughs> people who have never worked in a creative part of this industry and strictly work with numbers. But what I can say from the creative part is the more you're auditioning, the more casting directors you're getting in front of, the better your team is supporting you and knowing how to pitch you and knowing how to build your materials and put together your, your EPK as best they can. Because when I get pitched with a really great like press package, like the 
a bio and clippings and links and headshots and editorial shots and red carpet shots. I'm like, oh man, this is really cool. This speaks really highly of the work this actor is already doing, but also that I can send this along and really pump you up because your agents and managers have done the job of making your materials really look good. And like, mm. so beyond just a reel and a resume, I think with the sooner you can start getting like everything put together in a really professional manner with your team, the better it's going to look. And that's just, you know, like a visibility type of thing for people. But yeah, if it, the, the bottom line, it comes down to your team really is your biggest access into the industry. People like to say that like casting directors are these gatekeepers and we're not, it's truly just the actors way into getting in front of casting directors and that's their team, that's their agents and their managers and how often they're being submitted and pitched and how often they're being picked then to audition. But I will say that luckily in our industry and in the casting world, people are extraordinarily supportive of becoming more diverse and bringing up actors that maybe aren't as well known into lead roles and supporting roles. And, you know, and then there's people like Mindy Kaling and her production company where she's super focused on that world, which is incredible. And there's others like her too. And you see Jessica Beale and Reese Witherspoon and all these women stepping into the production space. And isn't it ironic that they're the ones that are really supporting diversity more than any other production that companies are. And you can't help but notice that and think like, wow, this is really cool to see the change happening. Is it happening fast enough? No, but look at what the industry's run by and then you wonder why. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> also, don't worry, Ash. I've been looking at cuts of your face a lot recently because I <laughs> submitted to Sundance yesterday. So I can tell you that some footage is coming your way. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> but anyway, Alexis, I'm curious for you. Do you feel more passionate about working um, for studios these days or in the indie world? I love the indie world for multiple reasons and for multiple timing reasons. Like now is a great time, I feel like, to be involved in independent film because it's changing so quickly that I feel like I was really lucky to get into it long enough ago to where I have like a, or like a good grasp on how it works from my side of the experience. And so I know what to look out for, how to protect myself, and also how to help indie film in the best way possible. A lot of the indie filmmakers that come to me think they know what they need to do, and often it's a little backwards. So they come from a studio model, and they think, well, we just got to hire the A-list actors first. And I'm going, this is not a studio film. We don't have a big-name director, and we don't have any money. So you won't have anything to offer these big-name actors. And in fact, these big-name actors and these agencies are getting really burnt out on all of the scripts and offers coming their way that don't have money because everybody wrote during COVID. And there's like this flood of of scripts in the market and everybody is emailing people trying to get actors attached. So my method has been to attach lesser known, but still really good actors that have a body of work that maybe isn't a pre-sale model type actor, but that they're recognizable and they've been on great TV shows and you know them when you see them. And so I attach a couple of those actors and then, then the bigger actors, the bigger agencies look at those names and they go, okay, that's cool. Like you've already got some actors on board that are like, recognizable and are doing good work. So obviously, you know, you've got something going here. There's some legs to this project and it just helps sort of legitimize your project a little bit in the eyes of the agents and the actors that are, that are going to help get your film made. The studio model for me, I love working on studio films because it's got this built-in financing, you know, there's already money. And so 
then you're dealing though with multiple decision makers that you have to answer to. And um, sometimes that process is wonderful. I've worked with some, like I loved working with Peacock and NBC, like their casting executive team is so delightful and lovely and supportive. And uh, a lot of the casting executives are women. Casting is largely women. And so it very much feels like this environment where I've I've always felt very supported by our executives on the casting side. And so I've felt like that process I've always really been fine with. It just comes down to certain studios where there's like people that aren't involved with the process at all, but they have the final decision. It becomes this sort of thing like, are they saying this just to feel like they have like, they're the decision maker and they changed the person that we wanted to say that like, oh, we weren't going to cast this guy till like I said it. Or are they doing it because they don't know what they don't know enough about the project to know that this person is right for the project. Like, are they not reading the script? Are they not watching the audition? So a lot of times the decision makers aren't very connected to the project on a studio level. And does that help or hurt the project? I mean, who knows, but I mean, who knows, but I think sometimes the process feels a little disjointed on the studio level, whereas on the indie level, it feel, feels very creative and artistic and like everybody's on the same team trying to make this thing, make it. You know, it's like, it's our chance to make a film with our names on it. What's your favorite project that you've cast so far? I love working on Lorelai. Jenna Malone and Pablo Schreiber are huge fans of both of them. You know, Jenna Malone is just one of those actors that's been around. And for our generation, we've grown up with her in films. She is such a good actor. I cannot, her process, the way she was with the kids on set, her involvement, her collaboration on set. I mean, she's a filmmaker, like she's a filmmaker. She's not just an actor. And that project was just so lovely. It's with this team that I've always really loved and love working with. You know, they did the Florida project. I just finished another film with them called What You Wish For. So that team is just really, really awesome. I will do anything, anything with them that they'll bring me on for forever. I love them. So that process and working with them is just great. And then we were working with Sabrina Doyle, who was a female director who graduated from um, AFM. And so she was doing the, she had done like some other projects, but this was like her first film. Like she had written it, she was directing it. So I loved that process and it was an indie film. So it was just really nice, you know, to have like this totally creative process with a team that was also like coming off of some pretty big films like the Florida project. So agents were more open to talking about big name actors coming on board, something like that, even though we had like no budget. <laughs> <laughs> with this whole process of being a casting director from the beginning of casting uh, actors to throughout the, the film or the TV show and with all the changes with the writing and stuff, how involved are you with that whole process? Or are you just in there when they're like, hey, we need to cast this person for this role and then they give you the script and you just read that script? Or are you continuously following along the journey of the show or movie? It um, depends on when we're brought on. Um, so for TV, we're a part of every new draft. So we'll get a script and then they might send us a new draft, you know, and this is also part of the reason for like schedule changes and last minute castings and like same day tapes, all this kind of stuff comes into play when we talk about those types uh -huh. of things. And so, yeah, then we're getting every draft, we're getting all the changes. We're having to like work with the change. It's TV so fast paced. It's insane. I don't think anybody in TV is paid enough across the board. So that's a different process. Now with film, we have a little more time. We're usually brought on pretty early in the process still, especially for attaching those lead names. Um, and then if we're doing like local casting, we're on through the whole thing. 
And yeah, if there's changes, we work with them through those. We like, they will send us out different versions. And of course, as you guys know, they like mark the differences, they star where everything's changed. They kind of give you a breakdown of what's changed. So if a role has been cut, you're given like an awareness if a role has been added, you know, to release that role and breakdown, all these kinds of conversations. But yeah, we're pretty, we're very involved in the process. And in fact, on TV, we're the ones that will notify actors of schedule changes. We're the ones that will notify agents and managers when their clients coming up in the next episode or two or whatever. I mean, we're very involved in that part of it. Like the actors and, and like, it's not like I just worked on a TV show where we were cross boarding like five and six episodes at a time. And I 100% thought my head was going to fall off. I just mm-hmm. could not, I could not believe how many changes were happening and so quickly and so often to the point where like even the day out of days and like, the one-liners we were getting weren't matching up to the scripts and they were leaving roles out and we had to catch it and be like, no, 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 this person's working next week. And it was just a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on that one. So, but yeah, we're very aware of like the scripts and the changes that happen. I want to go back and talk a little bit about the audition process because I'm curious for you, and we talked about it a little bit, like actors really do put casting directors on such a pedestal. And, you know, I think that for a lot of actors who haven't had access to casting directors before, they feel like, you know, the casting directors are holding the key to that door that will open up, you know, every opportunity for them. So I'm curious for you, what do you think actors can do really well in the audition process to stand out? And what are some things that you wish they really would not do? Yeah, I think that those two questions might have sort of similar answers. I wish that actors would stop trying to guess what casting wants, because what we want is to see what you bring to the role. I mean, that's what informs the process. If we had, you know... no life brought to the role like what would we do we need somebody who can come in and bring life into that role and breathe it into this form where we're like that's the person because that's the character so you're sort of informing us on our decision making process based upon how you bring the role to life so Mm -hmm. while we may have an idea of where we want this character to go and sound like and say certain lines and that's why we pick those scenes we're also smart people who know how to imagine an actor in another way And so if you flub a line, we're not going to go, nope, can't do it. We're going to go, okay, that was really good. They're on the right track. Like they maybe just need a note or two. And I feel like they could nail this. You know, we're very capable of seeing that. And that's why self-tapes work so great. Because I think actors think they need to like shove it down our throats. And really, it's just Mm -hmm. like, give us the general idea and we can imagine it. Trust me. Like we know when you're on the right track. And we want to help you nail it. So we will do whatever that takes, whether that's bringing you in in person for a callback, sending you a retape notice with like notes on it, like whatever that is, we're going to do it because we're not going to miss out on the best choice for the role. So what I wish actors would do and not do is like stop trying to guess what casting wants and just bring to it what you feel in your heart that role is asking you to do. And I think that's also when actors say, I want to stand out. I'm like, I hate using that phrase because I feel like that forces actors into this like caricature and they're like, let me make this big, bold choice. So I stand out. And then I'm like, yeah, but then you don't even look like a real person because a real person would not do that. So that's the problem, I think, when a lot of actors think I've got to really step out of the box and make this big, bold choice, when really the big, bold choice might be like, 
you know, you take a little bit of a longer pause than other actors might, because believe it or not, most actors speed through auditions and that also feels unrealistic and ungrounded. So if you can take your time with those parts of the script that maybe look like there's an ellipsis, that might mean like, hey, let's, let's think a second before we say the next part of this line. Or, you know, something like the thing I see actors always kind of not quite get in the audition process is the stepping over of each other's lines. Mm. And so I often will purposely pick scenes that have moments like that, because that for me is where I can see if you're capable of playing a real person or not. How realistically can you step over each other's lines? How much can you make that look natural and grounded and like based in a reality and the small mannerisms you bring to that character? Like, do you put your hair out of your face? Do you scratch your nose? Are you holding a purse? Like the little things that get added into these characters is what really for me, makes them stand out. Speaking of props, do you care if, let's say you're casting for a hospital, like a doctor role, do you care if actors, like, do you want them to go out and get, you know, like dress up like their doctors or do you not care about No, that? no. And most casting directors don't. Again, like we're very good at imagining. Like that's <laughs> our whole yeah. job, you know? And so I think if you're wearing a button up shirt, you don't need the lab coat. I can imagine that, you yeah. know, you're a doctor, you're doing your thing. Like if you can just give us the idea of that person, like maybe you're not wearing a ripped up band tee, but like put something on that at least like fits the vibe. I think that you're fine. Okay. And then again, like if you're on vacation and you're in a hotel, like we can also like make allowances for the fact that you're doing an audition, like somewhere that you don't have like access to your full entire setup and your wardrobe and everything. So I think a lot of actors don't understand how forgiving our process actually is because at the end of the day, we want everybody to be nailing it because like the more choices we have, the easier our job is. Like if we go in and we're like 10 choices, this is awesome. Then we're so happy. And like, we want one of them to book it. You know, it's like, that's the goal. So yeah, we're very forgiving. We're very understanding directors and producers are too. Like everybody really can watch you know, everybody can, if you think about it, actors can do it too. You know, when there's somebody who's not acting good on a TV show, like people talk yeah. about it all the time. So you can see that in an audition too, for sure. Can you share like typically how many people are you bringing in for a role and then how many are you narrowing it down to? Yeah, this is a broad question. And I realized when I wrote that deadline article that there was like at least two casting associates who were like, whoa, those are not normal numbers. And that for me felt like, Firstly, let's not post that on a public forum and try to make me look like I'm not talking about things the right way because I have now worked in multiple different markets and these numbers are right for me and my TV shows and offices I have worked in. Now, like, you know, working in an office like Lorray Mayfield, who regularly works for like David Fincher, our numbers are massive. It's Marvel. It's David Fincher. Like those projects are desired. So yeah, we're getting thousands of submissions on those projects. We're also getting hundreds of emails every day, every hour of pitches. So it's not like, I promise you guys, like I'm not making these numbers up to sound like poor casting. Like this is legitimate. There's 160,000 members of SAG and most of those are in LA. Do you guys think that the, they're not paying attention when roles are released? Like, no. So yeah, I mean, like I just did um, a TV show last year and at least three times on three separate roles, we had over 10,000 submissions. Is that normal? No. Does it happen? Yeah, it happens. Like it's happened. And out of that, we have to try to be conservative enough to make sure that we can watch all of those tapes which is within like a day or two because it's TV. It's moving super quick. 
And so we're trying to be conservative and that process is different for everyone. Like when we're really fast paced, generally we're just kind of looking through headshots. You can get a real feeling for who's mm -hmm. right or not based on their headshot. If there's people we don't really know, we're kind of deciding between people, we'll go further in. We'll look at resumes and reels and any other material they have to try to really narrow down our selections. Now, if it's like an indie film, maybe I'm getting 1,500 to 3,000 submissions per role, which to me, for me, is like median range, low median, you know, 2,000 to 5,000, I'd say is pretty average for like a lot of the TV roles that will go out in LA, like for LA local casting, because we have so many actors here. And then you talk about something more local, like New Orleans or North Carolina or Atlanta, maybe it's a little less, like maybe we're getting between 500 and 1500 submissions per role because there's less actors there and more things filmed there. There's more work to go around statistically compared to the number of actors that are there than somewhere like LA. But we don't have a whole lot of co-star guest star roles to go around, but we have a whole lot of actors here that want those roles. So the submissions can vary between markets. They can vary between offices. They can vary between projects and the demographics of those roles. Like if it's a white guy in his thirties, I know I'm gonna get at least 5,000 submissions on a high profile TV show, no doubt. Now, if it's a film and it's like, a kid who can speak two languages, maybe I'm seeing like 300 submissions, you know, it's, it's going to be different for every role. But if we're talking adults in their 20s to 40s, for most roles, I'm going to be seeing at least 1500 people being submitted. And so out of those, I'm probably going to choose around 150 to 200, because a third of the people in general don't tape for whatever reason. So I have to kind of account for attrition and make sure I still have enough people to try to get 10 to 20 selections out of, right? So I want 10 to 20 people to be good enough to send to producers. So it's a numbers game the whole time. You really wanna make sure you're covering your bases. And like my thing is, I don't wanna miss out on the person who might be the perfect choice. So if I'm gonna see a couple more people and spend my time doing that, rather than spend my time in the front end combing through reels and resumes, then yeah, I'm happy to see more people in the, in the back end and like give more actors auditions, give them more chances because that's also how I meet actors and that's how I remember people. So maybe you were right for this role, but I'm gonna bring you in for another project later because you gave me a good audition, you know? So also actors like not getting picked for an audition, not being a select does not mean you weren't good. It just means you weren't right. There's a difference between the two. Do you feel like you prefer remote working like being your casting you know offices everything being remote or do you prefer seeing actors in person i prefer remote 100 percent. this is a complicated conversation and i always tread light with lee with it because without fully understanding the casting process people will automatically assume that casting directors just don't care and that's not it like we actually care a lot or we wouldn't even do self-tapes because they take a lot of time and energy and resources to do self-tapes too um, and we're seeing more actors with self-tapes. Like when in person, we can see maybe 40 people a day, 50 tops. Um, and then you talk about how few people we'd be able to see in a week for a TV show. Like nobody would ever be getting auditions. So self-tapes are a huge, huge advantage for, for especially developmental actors. But, you know, the remote model for me has given me freedom. Like I said, we're on call 24-7 when we're on a project but we're only getting paid for a 60 hour work week. Mm -hmm. So regardless of where we are, we're on call and they could call us at any time with a schedule change or a recast or whatever. So, you know, a lot of us were already kind of working from home already. Like we were checking emails until we went to bed. We were checking emails before we got up, you know, before we got to work, like we're pretty used to being like on a hybrid model already. But the difference is 
I could walk my dogs. I could, now I have kids. Like I can get my kids to school. I can pick my kids up from school. I'm not spending money on childcare and like all these extraneous costs that are related to working in an office. When for a lot of times when you're in prep, like if you're not doing auditions, it did kind of feel like I'm just sitting in an office on my computer. I could be doing this at home. Like why are we in an office? And like the office culture can be stressful and even toxic if you're not in an office where they're very like, you know, supportive of their office staff or understanding in any way. Um, and we all know how abusive this industry can be and casting's not immune to that. So yeah, I think that, I think the, the remote model has made for a lot more mental health allowances for a lot of people. I don't really know many casting associates and assistants who aren't neurodivergent, at least a little bit. So I think most people are probably agreeing with me when I say like my mental health has gotten leaps and bounds better since working from home, which also makes me better at my job obviously, and more patient and understanding with anything that might happen with things on the job. No, I totally agree. I was so, so my background's in acting, but I was terrified to go to school at Columbia because I was afraid to be out of LA, you know, and even New York is still like a great market, but I called my agent like, is this okay? Like, is it okay for me to go to school? And luckily they were like, yeah, you should go to school. But I feel like the self-taping and maybe it's because I'm in producing school, but I feel like I have so much more control over the work that I'm sending in versus when you go into the room, you know, you could have been in LA traffic for an hour. Maybe you're sweaty, like you're intimidated because you're walking into a room of people who look exactly like you or, or maybe they look more know. famous than you yeah exactly <laughs> but when you're at home you know like there's no distractions it's just you getting to have fun with the character yeah and I also think like I explain this to people too like there's pros and cons to both but for me way more cons on the in-person model not that it's going to go away it's still valid mm-hmm. I think in-person callbacks are wonderful because that's where we actually already know all these people are on the right track It's worth our time and energy now to sit down and really work with these actors. Whereas in a pre-read model, it's a lot like with self-tapes. It's like a lot of those aren't going to be right. So now the conversation becomes, which is better for the actor's time if most of them are not going to be right? Because they can't be, you know, because it's a pre-read, like you're seeing 100, 200 people, like most of them are just not going to be right. So is it better to ask them to give up a shift, pay for childcare, drive, pay for parking, show up for five minutes? And then, or is it better to say, hey, here's this audition, do it on your own time, turn it in when you're ready. And I think where a lot of the actors balk at the process is because they just have not done this long enough to understand that, first of all, we're not asking you to be perfect. We're not asking for all these things to be in place. Like, it's an audition. We just want to see if you're on the right track and if there's more we can work with there. And we will know that relatively quickly, whether in person or on self-tape, the difference is in person, we can't say, okay, that's enough and kick you out. Like we have to still sit through the entire audition. And so now we're wasting everybody's time. And I don't even really want to say wasting time. It's just that it's a lot more of a time suck. Whereas we can invest our time much better in a self-tame bottle on the people that are already right for the role and really be able to get to that point faster and more efficiently and support more actors that way. And like I said, even if you're not right for the role, I still have seen you and I'm going to remember you next time you're submitted and go, oh, they gave me a great audition, even though they weren't right for that role. Like, let's bring them in for this role. So would that have happened in an in-person model? No, probably not, because I can only see like 30 people per role in person. So yeah, there's a big conversation around it. And honestly, most of the most disagreements and like the biggest pull pushbacks I've seen are from actors that are so developmental that it's like, I think Mm -hmm. maybe they would just benefit from maybe more classes or more auditions classes, more on camera classes, more improv to become 
so self-confident and comfortable in their ability that they know when they self-tape something, they're giving us their best attempt at it. And relying on being in the room for that is not going to benefit anybody because first of all, the notes and adjustments we're going to give you, we're going to be able to tell if you need those on tape anyway. So regardless, we're going to find a way to see you if you're on the right track. It doesn't matter if we're in the room to give you that note or not. But secondly, you know, it's, if you need that validation loop, that's fine. I would advise actors to become confident enough in their ability to not need that because when you go to set, you're probably not going to get that and isn't set the goal. So you're not going to have a casting director on set giving your notes. And if you're playing like a one day co-star with like a line, the director might not even look at you. You've just got to show up and do your job. Like they're not even going to be there to help you. Like you you're, they're expecting you to show up and perform and be ready to do that one line. So for us, it's a lot like, Hey guys, you got to be an actor who's ready to go do the job without needing somebody to hold your hand there. And so maybe self-taping is just like this model that's really preparing actors for that because you're going to show up to set, you're going to get your sides handed to you, you're going to go to hair and makeup, then you're going to go to set and nobody's going to be telling you how to do that job. They're expecting you to know how to do it when you show up. So it's hard, you know, it's a, it's a complicated conversation. I get actors' concerns, but I think it's also an opportunity for actors to really step into that place of being ready to do the job and maybe the in-person model is holding too many actors back from that because instead of focusing on like their acting ability they're focusing on like how do I make this casting director like me or how do I um, win the room and how do I do all these things and it's like none of that matters it's just the acting and the self-tapes allow us to fully focus on just that part of it so for you now with the strike, what have you been able to work on? Like, are things just super quiet? Can you do non-union stuff? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, so we can do non-union stuff. I don't do non-union stuff. I mean, I would if it was like, you know, TV, like, um, you know, like um, Nickelodeon or something. Yeah. But, you know, for me, I, I am very anti-non-union commercial. I refuse to take on non-union commercial work, especially when it's for a giant corporation. <laughs> I think that also defeats the purpose of a strike if we're letting Google and Amazon come in and make non-union commercials and take advantage of these these regulations. Meanwhile, taking away from actors who could be on a SAG commercial earning their health insurance minimums. So non-union commercials are predatory and, and I think very overdue to be super, super addressed by the film community as a whole and not just non-union actors who really don't know they're being taken advantage of at that point. But anyway, yeah, so we can work on non-union stuff. We can work on multiple projects. A lot of this stuff I have is in development, so we can't make attachments. You can't like, we can't even really talk technically to like the writers or anything about what they're doing or what they're like. We're very cautious on that, especially because I'm coming from the side of in a producer role. So I want to make sure I'm not crossing any lines. But again, a lot of the people I work with, we're all friends. So we text, like we talk, <laughs> we're not talking about work or doing anything we work forward, but we're all preparing for like when the strike ends and what we want to do next. So yeah, there's just like nothing going on for me. And a lot of my friends that I know that work on mostly like SAG after projects. Yeah. Nothing's, nothing's happening. It's very, very quiet. It feels a lot like um, the beginnings of COVID did where it's just like yeah. silence and just waiting to see what everybody's deciding is going to be the next thing to happen that's going to solve it. But, you know, I've, I keep saying like when the strike ends, we're going to be very grateful, but I don't want the strike to end just to have it end. It needs to end because everybody's getting what they want. So if it has to go on right. longer for that to happen, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been getting a lot more voiceover auditions mm -hmm. um, with the strike, like the SAG voiceover. And I'm like, do I build a fortress somewhere in my New York apartment <laughs> to record these? How long is this going to go on for? <laughs> 
Yep. Yeah, SAG voiceover right now. Fantastic time for actors to be getting their voiceover stuff put together and try to do that. Yeah, I love it. And, and you know, um, I've also said it's a great time for actors to just sort of like check everything that they have as far as materials go. And does anything need to be updated? Because this is a great time to be like, do I need to recut my reel? Do I have more material to add? Can I update my resume? Like, do my headshots need to be retaken? Is there anything I can do to like up? Can I write a bio for myself? Do I have any press clippings? Do I have red carpet photos? Like all these things are stuff you can really be putting together and working with your agents to prepare for when the strike ends. So shifting gears a bit, Ash, I feel like you should get to your absolute favorite question. Favorite question? Let's yes. do it. <laughs> Honestly, this is my favorite question, and I don't think it's ever going to not be my favorite question. But so outside of, I guess, the strike included, is there anything like, you know, when you're at your busiest moments where you feel like you just don't have time to do anything, do you have any healthy habits or routines that you are kind of, you know, like a non-negotiable for you to stay grounded and to be able to do the work that you're doing? Especially as a mom, too. Yeah. 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 As a mom, having that alone time and that self-care time is vital to being a good mom, but also to like just keeping your sanity. But yeah, my non-negotiables are I make my bed every morning right when I get up and I brush my teeth, I wash my face and I put my skincare on for the morning. And that's when my day starts. I don't start it till those things are done. That is a complete non-negotiable for me. It allows me, first of all, to wake up a little bit, you know, because I have a daughter that's in school. So like my mornings are like, get up and go, make breakfast, do her hair, get her dressed, get her snack packed, like all that stuff. So having that minute to myself to like make the bed, brush my teeth, do my face, my skincare stuff, gives me that moment of quiet before I jump into the chaos of like rushing around for the morning. So, and then I have like a very strict vitamin and supplement routine. I take like 15 different vitamins and supplements through the day and like that's another non-negotiable okay so now because we are damsels in the dms and i know that you've been sharing a lot of your stuff on social media we're curious what is the funniest wildest most intriguing or inspirational dm that you have ever received this was such a good question and i saw it and i was like oh man i really don't know i mean obviously the ones that are sent to me where it's like look at what this coach is charging and what they're saying or like the central casting stuff was all sent to me via DM. Like I used to work for them when I first came to LA, that was like my first job. And I was an extras casting director and I have lots of stories. I can talk about fat shaming. I can talk about uh, misogyny. I can talk about all kinds of stuff regarding that industry and that company and how it's run. But that entire piece about the likeness agreement and then about the voucher language was all sent to me in dms because actors are so afraid of retribution or retaliation that they're sending things to me because they're like i can't say anything about this and this feels really wrong and i don't know if i'm supposed to sign it or not so i sign it and it's like all these actors just don't know if this is okay or not but are also so afraid of not getting work because their at will policy is wild like they just fire people and black blacklist them from their company for like nothing Wow. Jeez. So those I DMs are always like, oh, juicy. <laughs> right. I feel like actors were afraid even just to go out and pick it, you know, or like people were afraid, like, um, what's okay to be posting on Instagram? Like, I don't want to not get work. Like, it is such a, I don't know, scary relationship for actors right now because you're so afraid to not get work after everything is all said and done. I agree. And then, you know, what gives me hope though, is I'm seeing big actors and writers and producers and directors that are speaking up and it's like, okay, 
you know, I don't think that they can hold it against an entire industry that we're all mad at the AMPTP. Like they got to hire people back at some point or they have no, no work coming in. So, you know, unions are, are for very valid reasons upset. And the idea of not getting work is terrifying. So I completely understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So the DM of the week asks, have you ever regretted a casting decision you made and what did you learn if so? I haven't regretted casting decisions. I have regretted jobs I've taken on. Mm. And a lot of those revolve <laughs> around the treatment of me during or after. Um, I'll give you one example. There was a job I did. I was very excited about it because it was a cool project, just like fun and young. And they offered to pay me $2,500 to like cast a certain number of leads to help them get their financing. And a lot of times what these producers will do is if they're friendly with other actors, they'll just start, start reaching out and trying to like cast and hire people, which is always tough because it's like, I'm not seeing the offers. I don't know how they're saying things. Are they like, you know, are they going under or over? Are they not offering them enough? Are they, are they breaking any SAG or labor laws? Like you just don't know. And that's always tough because when they're overstepping like the casting process, it can actually mess you up because then also agents are like, why isn't this coming through your casting director? And so things mm. like that happen quite often on indie film, which is tough. But then the other thing is they were hiring like people they knew. And then I was like also sending them lists and like hiring. So I hired like two actors and then they ended up hiring two of people they knew. So then, you know, it starts getting created and they send me my check and it was for half of what they had signed into on a contract. And I was like, hey, so you're missing about, I don't know what it was like $1,700 or something. And they were like, well, no, because we hired two of the actors. And I said, well, I was there ready to do it. I was making the list. I was checking the avails. I was doing my part of the job. If you found them, that's great. But my agreement was upheld and that's the money you owe me. And I will go to my union. <laughs> so they ended up actually sending me a little bit more, not the full amount, but you know, it's just really disrespectful because it's like, it doesn't matter whether or not I signed the deal and cast those actors. I was creating all of those lists, checking all of those avails, putting together the offers, getting it ready. And so if you went out and hired two of your friends, that's fine. It doesn't take away from the amount of work I did. And that seems right. to be kind of a conversation surrounding casting a lot is everybody's always downplaying the work we do. But yeah, so I was very insulted. I wish I had not taken that job. I was like, this is such an insulting process. Like, it was hard the whole time. And so it ended up taking me like almost two years to cast those roles. And I made $2,500 if that, and it was just like, at the end of it, it's like, was it worth it? No, no. Cause I had to fight even just for that little bit of money. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for sharing that story and all of the insight that you shared with us today. It was seriously so informative and we really appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks for the questions. They were great and super fun. This was, yeah, this was super informative. Oh, thank, thank you. you. And can you please tell our listeners where they can find you and stay up to date on everything that you're working on? Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram as AW underscore casting. And then on TikTok is AW casting, all one word. Find me there. I love, I'm very active on social media. So <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, all right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. As always, please rate, review, subscribe to our podcast, and please keep sending us your DMs of the week because we are always reading and your questions do get asked to the guests. Yes, and if there are people that you would like us to have on or information that you want us to cover, please let us know because we are building out our fall season. All right, everybody. Well, it's been another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Until next time. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Bye. DMs. Yeah, we see them. Yeah, we read them.
DMs, DMs, we don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.